Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Coming up on this episode of White Wine Question Time. And as for health and safety, I mean, I did a lot of the plumbing in the early restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) Think of that now. (laughs) I did a bit of the gas plumbing as well. I mean, you'd be locked up, throw away the key. I feel like sometimes I maybe let them down that I haven't sort of given them lectures. I mean, my son Jack was fond of saying the only thing I taught him how to cook was how to cut bread, you know. (laughs) But, um... Hush. (laughs) And one of us is saying, what do you like best, food or sex? He says, oh, food, definitely. No, sex. Now, hang on a minute, food, like this. (laughs) Welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is a man who certainly knows his way around a wine list. He's one of our best-loved and best-known chefs who's been running restaurants for over 40 years and making cookery shows for almost 30. In fact, he opened his first restaurant 48 years ago and, well, has never really looked back. Such is his pull. 30,000 people booked reservations and joined the waiting list at his 10 restaurants as soon as we came out of lockdown, which is ironic when you consider that he actually never wanted to run a restaurant. At the time, in the mid-70s, he had a mobile disco, yeah, and he wanted to run a nightclub. And for a while he did, but it only attracted drunken, brawling fishermen in the Cornish village of Padstow and their bloody bust-ups got the place shut down and his licence revoked. You can run a restaurant, he was told, but not a nightclub. 
and so he did. In fact, such has been his impact on Padstow, it's now commonly referred to as Padstein, but he was actually born and raised in the Cotswolds and only moved to the coast as an 18-year-old. The family relocated when his father was forced to take early retirement and was struggling with depression. Tragically, within months of arriving there, his dad took his own life. Running from his grief, he travelled the world for two years and upon his return, read English at Oxford University as a mature student. Returning to Padstow with a degree in hand, he started dating his first wife and business partner, Jill, with whom he has three grown-up sons and a wildly successful food empire, made all the more buoyant by his increasing fame, having made 30 food shows for the BBC and written more than 25 best-selling cookbooks. Now 76, he's married to his second wife, Sarah, and lives between their home in her native Australia, London and Padstow, where his three sons help run the family business alongside him and their mother. But today he's in none of those places. In fact, he's on his travels mid-book tour. So let's dial him in, shall we? It's Rick Stein. Good morning, Rick Stein. Where on earth on this planet do I find you today? Good morning, Kate. Well, I'm, I'm actually in Newcastle. I had to think for a second oh, hey. to find where I was. Um, we did a, a book conversation last night with a local book um, shop, which would had 300 people there. And um, I'm just talking about simple suppers, and um, it went really well, actually. Everybody had a copy of the book, which is very nice. And um, today we're off to Morpeth. And then Edinburgh. Edinburgh after that, yeah. yeah. Do you feel feel like the Mick Jagger of cookery? (laughs) You know, like all these people turning up for you. You're a man that should have your feet up, but you're still rocking and rolling wherever the crowds come. Well, um, not at all. But I mean, I must say I'm approaching Mick Jagger's wonderful age. I've got a bit (laughs) a few years to go. Um, and, but I still like working, really. I still like writing cookbooks and um, going on the road. I, I've travelled when I've done these book tours with the same Claire Scott, and the, the same people and the same driver, Barry, every, every, for about 20 years. So it's a bit like, you know, a bit like a rock and roll band. We're back on the road again. <laughs> it's Friday, it must be Newcastle. Well, here's some rock and roll stats around you. People talk about getting a reservation at one of your... Is it still 10 restaurants yes, that you've got? Yes, Yeah. At one of your 10 restaurants, is like they're like Glastonbury tickets. They're that hard to get. <laughs> they're not. Well, but, well, when we came out of lockdown, Rick, yeah. 30,000 people registered for bookings as, as the roadmap for coming out of lockdown um, was, was laid out to us. In your restaurants, 30,000 people wanted to come and eat in one of your 10 restaurants. That's rock well, and roll. Okay, fair enough. That sounds very impressive, I have to say. But, um, I mean, just obviously it depends what time one – I mean, if I'm talking about the Padstow restaurants or the the Sandbags one, the summer is really busy, I, I admit. But if, I bet if you rang the seafood up now in Padstow, they, they, you could get in tonight, you know, no problems. Funny, interesting thing about restaurants, though, if you – if you can stand the stress, you tend to find if you ring up at the last minute, you can probably get in because um, there's always cancellations. And um, but it's not if you want to go with friends and you want to do a, have a special event, it's probably not worth the stress. Now that is a bit stressy. That's a bit <laughs> yeah. sweaty of upper lip. Another rock and roll stat for you um, was the fact that the Sydney Morning Herald 
um, because let's face it, Rick, like Mick Jagger, you're global. <laughs> known on both sides of the planet. Described you as something of a sex symbol. Um, what? Writing that, yeah, that apparently when you do your swimming shots in your cookery shows, there's there's many a man and woman waiting with bated breath for you to emerge sort of like, you know, Ursula Andress style oh from the God. from the lapping waves. How about that then? Well, I certainly ha- I haven't seen that one. Maybe just as well. It's a bit embarrassing. I'd get it laminated if I was you. <laughs> it's just the, uh, Matt, the director, said, go on, we'll have a swim. Because really the reason I do all this swimming is he's got this sort of GoPro thing, you know, a little... Um, yeah. And he loves interviewing me in the water, right? Doesn't and he it? likes to swim himself. So it's like <laughs> we're, all, we're always stripping off and jumping in so he can take underwater pics of us swimming. It's nuts, isn't it, Rick? When you think about when you started out in telly, um, I was about a year, two years behind you, right? So I feel that we've we've emerged through all this technology together. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the day, to get an aerial shot, you'd have to charter a helicopter. That was a big line in the budget. Now you just throw a drone in the air or stick a GoPro on. I mean, it's the world has advanced massively. That's such hasn't a it? good point, Kate. Because I, I can remember the problems of getting an air helicopter. Yeah. I remember once. Um, we, uh, I can't, can't remember the company, thank goodness I can't, but they were sort of cheaper than the rest. Ooh, never good with a helicopter. <laughs> <laughs> the helicopter, where were we? Oh, on a tour in Devon, <clears throat> on the, you know, Dart- Dartmoor. And the two guys got out of the helicopter and just lay on the ground because they got such minging hangovers, right? And I just had a look <laughs> at the controls and they're all tied up with tape and rubber bats and things. <laughs> anyway, we did it, survived, but... <laughs> those were the days you know now a drone um piece of cake isn't it yeah but you know i used to love the theater of all of that like you know you'd have to get up at 5 a.m to get the sunrise shot yeah with you know a helicopter and then you'd meet the helicopter pilot because i used to do travel shows for the bbc yeah and then and like you never knew if they were joking or not when they'd go, I've never done this before (laughs) flown a helicopter When you, uh, it's, so, it's such a good point now because I mean drones are like you know they're just tiny you know and they do and they do the same thing and um, um, my director I worked with for twenty five years David Pritchard he used to call them effing drones right because he was old school and he just he just hated them because we had to you know he got all he needed and then we had to launch the drone you know and of course the yeah. drone pilots in the old days were I mean they're now. Our second cameraman, Martin, does all the drone shots. We used to hire them in, and they they could be quite bolshy and sort of like into their art, so they weren't very directable. But now it's okay. Well, I mean, literally now you can order them online. They're here the next day. You literally throw them in the air and direct them. I mean, it's a, it's a stunning piece of kit, but it is doing a lot of a lot of cameramen and women out of a job. Certainly. Yeah, I think so technology Such is the world of ai the thing yeah. is you know you, you can get all the tech you like in the world no one's going to be able to shell a prawn or you know fry a scallop like you rick so i think well, you're almost ai proof well i think so i think the whole you know cooking restaurants are ai proof certainly in the actual production of the meal you could find a little robot r- rushing around getting derby souls out of the fridge and heating up the it's quite a quite quite a long shot that one 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, there's some things that do require a human touch. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, this is all the stuff that you're going to be getting into because I, I, I know you've got live shows coming up next year. Tickets have gone on sale today, I believe, the yes. day that we're recording. Yes. Congratulations. An yeah. evening with Rick Stein. And... I mean, I logged on last night to see um, if I could buy a ticket and I have to join a waiting list. There's a waiting list wow. to buy your tickets. Gosh. Look at you, Mick Jagger, in a penny. <laughs> I suppose this book tour is a bit of a dry run because what I'm doing, actually, is because it's evolved, actually, book tours. In the old days, all you did was go into a bookshop and sign books. But now you've got a big audience. I had 500 in bars the other day. And um, so, you, you know, you've got to... You've got to be quite entertaining to sell your book these days. You, you can't just sign them. But it does give me a chance to try a few routines out, Kate, you know? <laughs> That's With- it. It's a dry run. Because, you know, when you when you think back to how you began selling your wares, tell me if I've got this wrong, but in the early days when you opened the restaurant, you would put flyers on windscreens in cars that were parked locally yeah. or drive through a caravan park with a megaphone telling people to book in. It's true. Gosh, I don't know where... That's funny. That's the first time anybody's reminded me of that. But we did. I mean, it, and I mean, it seems the most antisocial thing to do now is to go around <laughs> loads of cars in a car park, put a brightly coloured sticker under their windscreen, and also the megaphone thing. But hey ho, it worked, you know. And but in that, this is like in the seventies, so it was sort of like things are a bit sort of looser in those days, as was the cooking. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Was it really? Well, I mean, the, the thing is that what's happened over the years is that people have become much more knowledgeable about food and cooking and therefore much more demanding about how how their food is cooked. But in the early days, everybody was, you know, restaurants, there were a few very well-known restaurants, but opening a restaurant was fairly easy to do. I mean, there were no health and safety regulations and you didn't really need that much in the world of, in the terms of decor. I mean, our first decor in the seafood restaurant was just um, a load of old herring nets and <laughs> tables with, you know, red, red check tables and candles in bottles. And as for health and safety, I mean, I did a lot of the plumbing in the early restaurant. <laughs> Think of that now. Think of, <laughs> bit of, I did a bit of the gas plumbing as well. I mean, you'd be locked Bloody up right away the key these days. <laughs> yeah, different times. Different yes. times. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that takes me very nicely to my very first question for yeah. you, if that's all right. I shall dive in and serve my first course. Your dreams of becoming a coastal nightclub owner were dashed horribly after the police shut you down, leaving you with no option but to open a restaurant. So you kind of your hand was forced into this fabulous life that you've gone on to establish. Um, and 40 years, when well, it's now 45 years on almost, isn't it, that the yeah. seafood restaurant yeah. opened? Jesus. Yeah. That, that remains kind of, you know, the heartbeat of your business. But I wondered, when else in life has bad news turned out to be the ultimate blessing in disguise? Because I know when you were shut down, you were devastated. You really thought that you were going to be the Peter Stringfellow of Padstow. And it wasn't to be, was it? No, I mean, I, I, it was <laughs> not exactly the Peter Stringfellow. Even yeah, I just realised you had a strip club. Sorry, Rick. <laughs> we didn't have poles in the club, although we did, but it, it was sort of nets hanging from that too. Um, well, I, 
it's sort of like it is extraordinary what you're saying that that um, sometimes terrible things and I was really devastated I declared not fit and proper person to hold a drinks license through no fault of yours actually but I mean like, you know when you when you assess the scenes that the police were being called out to you don't in this this nightclub thinking oh my god this place is going to be rammed and jumping it's the era of disco it's going to be great and actually it was just drunken fishermen having massive bus correct ups. correct on the on the pavement outside that you you literally couldn't even scrub the blood from the tarmac could <laughs> you before stage, there was a fresh layer I say and i remember after that notorious um trouble fight somebody got struck with a broken glass um i said to my my friend johnny and business partner i said we this, this we just can't go on like this right and i mean we were just so young and so not equipped to run a nightclub with a late license that in fact, what happened was looking back was the best thing that could have happened to us being closed down. And I probably said in my memoir, but it was so, I think I did, but about four or five years after we were closed down, the policeman had closed us down, the inspector invited me over for tea, right? And just said, <laughs> he said, we felt really sorry for you boys because you were just so, so green behind the ears, but there's nothing we can do for you, but you know, make sure you were closed down. And by then, I was starting to make a bit of a name myself for myself for, um, you know, the cooking. And I just said, well, to be honest, he was called Ian Hooper. It's the best thing that happened to us, you know. And I suppose there's a few things in life when things go wrong. I mean, I remember once I was work. I, I got a, a job on a freighter in New Zealand going through all these exotic places like uh, through the Far East, um, what we call the Far East then, like Southeast Asia, you know, calling off in Bangkok, Singapore, can't remember where else. And um, and this would have been what? It Early was 70s. about 1970, uh, sorry, 1967, I think, 66, 67. Wow. And the, so I got this job. In, yeah, I got a job in an engine room it, it, on this boat. And the skipper said, I'm sorry, we're not going there. We're going via America. So I, I said, fine, off we went to America. And as a result of that, I traveled by Greyhound bus all around America. And then I went to Mexico. And actually going to Mexico for me is like an amazingly important part in my sort of culinary development. Because for the first time I'd had this sort of incredibly, for a much used word, vibrant food, very colorful, very hot and flavours of sort of coriander, which I wasn't familiar with, and lots of chilli. And I, I did a whole series out of it. You know, I did a programme retracing my steps. So um, there's a, I just think there's, you know, you in the words of the sound of music, behind every cloud there's a silver lining or whatever it was. There is if you look for it. There is if you there is if you look for it. Every, every pig's ear has the potential to be a silk purse. Correct, Kate. The philosopher in you is blossoming. This morning, I don't know where I'm pulling it from, Rick. I'm exhausted by lunchtime. Uh, <laughs> I'll need to lie down at this rate. But actually, sometimes... the bit in the sound of music, when the good Lord closes a door, somewhere he opens a window. There you go. That's right. So talk about some, tell me about some of those other windows that have popped open. Because so much of your life was never planned, right? No, it, no. It's sort of There was um, no roadmap. You no. were literally just... It's funny because when, um, I don't know who first coined the phrase, but when David, the director I worked with and loved to bits, um, we, when we were doing Se uh, Secret France, he said, I oh, know, let's make this a journey without maps. And I guess that you could say that 
about about my life really you know things just turn up and i think a lot in a lot of cases it's like stuff happens but it's it's you you've got a sort of it depends how you deal with it you know and you can either get oh well it's me or you can say well i'm I'm gonna pick myself up here i'm glad it's happened you know (laughs) move on yeah and actually a lot of your um like you say, you know, while you were working in that engine room, you ended up in Mexico, which was so informative to you. Those those years when you ran away to sea, as you call it, that was yeah. following the, the death of your father. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, you're a young 18-year-old guy, doesn't know how to process his feelings. Yeah. Just is on the run, running from your grief. Yeah. That, I mean, true, it's true. I mean, you know, you don't think that at the time. You just think, you know... I remember the animal song. We've got to get out of this place, you know, at, at that time. And I was thinking, I've got to, I've got to get away. But I didn't, I didn't sort of realise what was driving me at the time. But it was like grief and sort of like, you know, the sort of, it, it's quite a gloomy thing having a father that's committed suicide. It's hard to come to terms with. It's embarrassing, you know. And it also, you, you're missing your dad. So uh, it was, it was a time, a really good time to run away. I must say. <laughs> And um, so I, I guess it's, I mean, I'm loving the way you put in my life, which seems to be a sort of a series of d- dealing with sort of like things going wrong. But there, there is a sort of pattern there, I guess. Is you, I think that's everybody's life, though, isn't it? Yes, I think so. To I varying think- degrees. I mean, what happened to you as a 17-year-old was extreme in the worst, you know, it, it beyond most people's imaginations. You know, you're losing your dad in the circumstances that you did. But then running away to figure out how to deal with it, there was an intelligence to that in some ways because it was so raw being at home that actually stepping back probably gave you a chance to reflect in a place that was otherworldly. I think so. And it's, it's quite interesting because I, I was talking to a journalist when because I've written about all this in my autobiography. And um, I've always thought myself as being like, cautious and not and not pushing myself and he just said no you, you aren't you really, you really aren't i guess it's the way one you know the the way one thinks of oneself is not necessarily the whole picture i think and um it's funny because you're this dichotomy of like low self-esteem but full of so much self-belief for example flunked your exams as you know, as a grief-stricken teenager, go off around the world, really get a taste for the world. Like you say, travel. I mean, you did Australia, New Zealand, Mexico, America. You were you were everywhere. But then came back and applied to Oxford as a mature student. So someone with low self-esteem, that seems odd. <laughs> well, I... <laughs> I know. I picked up some information about Oxford that they, um, they were really keen to get sort of mature, slightly more mature people. I mean, it was only about 22, 23 at the time, but uh, because they just wanted a bit of a balance. And I guess just after the Second World War, we had lots of people returning from the Second World War. And so there was this really good mix of people in universities. But then then latterly, it just became 18-year-olds leaving school. And uh, I mean, I was older and I'd been to places. I think they just wanted me as part of the mix, which indeed I was, you know, because I had been to places. I was still very young, actually. And it didn't totally work out because I I just really liked the partying in Oxford and the social life. And I got a third class degree, which, you know, 
uh, there's one or two people like Evelyn Moore who also got a third class degree. So I'm sort of like in, in a very good company, but I felt a bit bad about that. But the um, thing is, at the time, we put so much importance on those grades right now. People just, you know, for example, I read about you. I just read that you went to Oxford as a mature student and read English. I don't care what grade you got. No, it's a good Just point. the fact that you even got in there, you know, is flipping <laughs> brilliant, especially on the back of such a difficult personal time in your life, you know, commendable. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I mean, any, I'd urge anybody that if they've got a bit of spare time, if they think they could get to university, go, because it's just, it's just, I don't know whether it's special to go to places like Oxford, Cambridge, Durham, or St. You know, St Andrews w- with this sort of ancientness about them, which has a great aura about it. But I, I mean, my kids went to, my two of my sons went to Cardiff, and I, I think they felt the same thing, that it's just being at that particular age and um, just growing up with it, really, and having, you know, part, you know, having a good social life and having plenty of, Friends. I mean, I guess the friends that I made at university are the ones that are still friendly with. You still still know the ones that are still alive. That is, <laughs> that's another thing. <laughs> I know. You know, as you travel through life, you go, "Oh, I've got a wedding this weekend." Oh, now it's funerals. Suddenly, you just jump from that to that, and you're like, "That that oh. bloody happen?" Oh, it's a what? different outfit entirely, isn't it? <laughs> It is true, actually. One of my friends, Janine, one of my friends just died, and she sent this le- this text saying, "I've had enough. Six funerals since March. It can't go on like this." <laughs> my mum and her sister, they 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 treat it as a sort of um, what kind of an extension of their social life now. So they keep an eye on the obits because I'm from Cheltenham in Gloucestershire, not too far from where you where you were born and raised, actually. Absolutely. Rick. And they do a lot of, we're representing the family, but I do think there is a great social element to it as well, and a buffet. <laughs> well, I always remember, because funny, my, my mother in her latter years lived in Burford, which is quite near Cheltenham, and yeah. um, as her friends fell off the perch, me and my sister Henrietta used to say to her, how come you're not more, more, more upset? And she just said, well, just people are dying so fast. You know, I think when... People die when you're young. I can remember, I'm sure you can, Kate, sort of various friends that died yeah, at an early age. shocking. It's shocking. It's like four weddings and a funeral, you know. But yeah. the, le- the older you get, the less sort of surprised you are, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, quite right. <laughs> Let me take you to your next question, if that's okay. Yes. I'd like to rewind the clock, Rick. And I wondered if you could, I know you're a man that loves a pint at 5.30. Yes. Right? That's, that's your optimum pint time, isn't it? Well, it's just because when we were filming, it, it, David, the director, or we always had to try and make 5.29, right? And for a pint, finish filming and go 5.29. The reason I now realise, he was a film editor here in Newcastle for years and years. And the, the earliest evening news started at, I think, 5.30, so he had to get all the films cut and ready to go by sort of five twenty eight. So straight into the Brilliant. pub at five twenty nine. <laughs> and therein lies your tradition. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay, so I want you to. Uh, it's five twenty nine. There's an yeah. evening ahead of you, and you get to to share a pint with your eighteen year old self, that young man yeah. that ran away around the world to heal his heart. 
What would you, as a 76-year-old now, sit down and share with him? What what wisdom have you acquired that might have saved him a little bit of heartache? I just think probably um, it's just a very, very obvious thing, but time heals. And, it, you know, there's nothing more that you can say. You can There's all kinds of, um, you know, stuff you can bring in from your life experience. But I think it's sort of, um, I mean, time is, a, is ticking away nicely. <laughs> too quickly yeah but also if thing, when things go wrong you know the, the body and the mind and the sort of change of circumstances just tends in the end to sort it all out and it's not saying very much it's just you know but your introduction to adult life was was pretty brutal you know most people at that age don't contend with what you did um do you look back and do you feel a sense of pride at how you pulled yourself through that? You, your siblings, your mum, very well, dark times. It's sort of, yeah, I mean, I suppose, but so many other people go through things like that. Mm. I, you know, it's only my personal experience, but I mean, um, yeah, basically life is tough. You know, it's, it's all very, you know, we all want to be happy all the time and and sort of nice things happening to us. But generally, it's the reverse. <laughs> it's just how you deal with it, I think. That's the other thing I'd say to my 18-year-old. It's like, not only don't panic, but the other thing I'd probably say in mod- modern, modern days, don't blame other people for everything, you know? You've got, you've mm. got, you know, you've, you've got to look after yourself and you've got to say, look, you know, don't be, if there is, definitely a chance i mean definitely not a chance but if there is an occasion where somebody else is to blame fine but it just seems to me but that's i would say this at my age that that you, you know it's this whole idea of sort of entitlement that that, pe- that young people seem to feel that somebody else is to blame and i think it's sort of almost something to do with the whole not just young people but everybody is always looking for somebody else for the responsibility when a lot of the time the responsibility rests with you like it or not you know and i'm not saying out of, out of that you should just sort of grin and bear it but i think there's a balance you know and and i think as long as you sort of realize that a, a lot of the time things aren't going to go well uh, and you just need to deal with it you know and, and expect it and expect everything. Unfortunately, yeah. Know. Well, that's that's where that sense of entitlement can come from because you expect everything to go right. It's like no, no, no one's no one's gifted that. Trust yeah. me. And, and actually, it's the the bumps in the road that teach us the most. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, you know, you've, we've just talked about all the way through, like losing my license as a, a you know, as a eighteen year old. No, I was a bit older than that, but but it just. I learned so much out of it, really, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's funny the way life, life lessons. is. Yeah. yeah, life lessons. Well, life lessons, yeah. And then, of course, you've got the extraordinary situation now where you you now have three grown sons. They all work for you with yourself and your ex-wife and still business partner. Have you imparted a lot of these life lessons, this acquired wisdom to them or is that something you've had to sort of sit back and watch them do for themselves? I think you just, I don't, I, don't, I feel like sometimes I maybe let them down that I haven't sort of given them lectures. I mean, my son Jack was fond of saying the only thing I taught him how to cook was how to cut bread, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, Hush. I just, um, I don't know, I guess it's maybe because I'm 
a bit selfish, a bit self-centered, or, or or maybe it's more than that. Just you know, you know, I, I just get on with it. Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm still trying to work that one out. I feel I should have done more for them, but you know, they're grown up and they're. Um, it's funny because I did an article in the or I did an interview in the Daily Mail the other time other day, and the, the, my sons were described as my middle-aged sons. Not sure they're quite ready for that yet, to be honest. But they seem to really know um, the roles that they play within the family business. So you go onto your website and there's an opportunity to meet all kind of five, well, six of you actually, because you, you've got one of your daughter-in-laws involved in the business now as well. But they have all very defined roles. One's in charge of architecture and the maintenance side of it. Then there's a, you know one son who's in charge of all the booze, the other one who's the director of all the chefs that work across the business. I mean, it's almost like um, you made a plasticine Play-Doh family with the, with their job titles in mind. How did it come to be, Rick? It's I think it's just pure chance, really. I don't think there was a sort of like, there wasn't any decision for, you know, Ed to be involved in the design and Jack in the food and Charlie in the booze. It's just the way they've sort of, what they've done in their lives. Uh, and it does work really well because the what long in a family business, the one thing you don't want is, is competition, you know, and, and they do, they do understand that, 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 you know, they don't want to fall out with each other. They all, they all get on very well with each other. And I think they realize that one of the ways of not falling out is being responsible for different areas in the business. It's like it's like a foodie succession, isn't it? Don't know. You're Logan Roy. You're Logan Roy. <laughs> I met Logan Roy the other night. Went to the theatre and he was on in um, Brian Cox in in Bath. It's, you know, oh, did you? Yeah. You sort of forget this. You know, you think it's like um, years and years ago when there was the first Poldark series and one of my Padstow fishermen guys not not particularly sort of sophisticated came up to i can't remember what he was called um the actor that played pulled up and, and said good morning Ross. Oh, aiden turner no no it was before that one um yeah i can't remember but it said good morning ross <laughs> so it's almost it's almost sometimes you forget you're talking to an actor not the real person I know. <laughs> yeah. was he excited to meet you no, no, he didn't know who I was, but then he, he sort of um, discovered who I was. It was quite nice, actually, because Trevor Nunn, who was um, directing the play, had, um, I, I, I know him well because he had a house in, in Cornwall near Padstow, so, and I hadn't seen him for ages. So, um, you know, it was sort of like <laughs> Trevor Nunn said, what an honour, Rick. And I said, no, I don't think it's an honour. <laughs> so I think... I think Logan Logan was quite <laughs> impressed with that, but he was really nice. I mean, I did I did like him and um, and his wife. Yeah, fantastic. They're both in the play. It was about bark. It was fab. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How much do you attribute your natural curiosity to your travels? Because I think the more you see of the world, the more questions it presents, the more answers answers you go in search for. Uh, well, um, uh, do you know, Kate, I was just, I just always think I was just really lucky because I started off cooking and the reason I got into TV and all that was really just to promote the restaurants. Yeah. And then I got into travelling and what I realised that actually travelling and finding food is the best way to communicate with people all over the world. And I mean, you know, times are so awful at the moment but I do think that, that if you're, you go to somebody's country and you want to talk to them about their food, it's just the most sort of, it, it, it's not, you know, it's not talking about the weather. It's talking about something they really, really want to talk about. And it doesn't matter where you go. It's, it's very, if you talk to local people about what they like to eat, it's very disarming for them. And you become yeah. very, you know, it's very easy to make friends. And I think it's... Um, it's 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 one of my i had this really good journalist friend called johnny apple who was a american journalist he was actually a chief political correspondent for the new york times for a long time but his sideline was food and he once said to me you can't go wrong with food you can go to somewhere talk about food and that's the main thing but then bring in a few other things at the same time which is what i do really i just like because yeah. i love architecture i love art i love music so i bring everything literature as well poetry i sort of like bring everything into it and it's it's not that i'm sort of putting it on because i really like all that stuff but it works you know it's like what i always say is about um you know my dog chalky right That, that, that made it into the first of my tv programs well the 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 great thing about david pritchard was that he he just saw that if you're going to make an interesting program, it has to have little bits to it. You can't just go and say, right, I'm going to cook in the next half an hour. I'm going to cook five dishes. You know, it's fast forward then because you just think, well, I'm just, I would be bored. What you do is you cook three dishes and then you you, you get the dog in every now and then. right? Because people love the dog, right, for a start. Yeah. But also what you started to do is go, okay, I'm going to cook this. And by the way, meet Dave. Dave caught this fish earlier. Dave lives here. This is the story of, of this village, this town, these people. You You set a story to a dish. So by the time it came to taste it, you'd already invested in it. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's journalism. <laughs> That, oh, is it? <laughs> well, yeah, it is because you you wanted to be a journalist, so you set yeah. the story. And yeah. actually, you know, 
the eating of the food by the by the time you raise the fork for the first mouthful yeah you are invested in what's on that plate yeah, you've told true. the story of the dish it's true and I, I, it's the same thing really that if you want to grow, get people's attention you have to it has to be more than just write what's in front of them you know it's like in a, in a novel it's not just about the plot it's about everything else in there you know you know so so i, I yeah there you go great journalism the stories that you put across your cookbooks help yeah. you to want to invest in which which dish to cook. It's the stories that you set to them. What are your favourite simple suppers? It's hard because it, it's the books full of recipes that I really like, of course. And I wouldn't be there if they weren't. And so I'd, I would always go to one or two sort of slightly quirky dishes in the book. There's one in there which comes from Portugal, which is just for a dish of clams, but you can use cockles or you can use mussels. And it's just with a bit of butter, a bit of olive oil, uh, some chilli, a bit of garlic, white wine, and coriander, right? And the reason it works and why I like it so much is that nobody apart from the Portuguese in, the U- in Europe really cooks with coriander. So to have what you think is going to be like a French type of, you know, mussel bivalve dish, flavoured with coriander. It's that sort of shock of, hey, this is great, you know? And it seemed to me to epitomise the sort of the, the, the sort of essence of the book, which is about simplicity, but also about, like, saying, hey, I really like this. I mean, another dish in the book is from the old, I don't know if you remember, I'm sure you do, the spaghetti houses in London in the 70s. Yes. Well, there's a dish that I got from there, which was just uh, pasta, spaghetti, with olive oil and, and garlic and parsley, right? And you see how... It sounds that... lazy, so tell me it's not. It's not. I mean, it's just... It's just... I think this is the first time, and I think I say in the book, that it's the first time I realised, having been brought up with, I don't know, like if you can think of sort of tin spaghetti, right, with just yeah. a bit of pasta and loads of tomato sauce, this idea of just putting just a bit of oil, a bit of garlic, a bit of parsley... You know, maybe if you like a bit of chilli, but I don't think there was in the original. And and it's all about the pasta. It just sort of shit. It's just, I think a lot of the time, you, you know, you draw attention to what is the essentials of a dish just by keeping it really, really simple. Another really dish simple. in there, one more, because I... Um, I don't want to bore you, but there's one dish. No, no, I, no, no. Listen, I'm loving it because I also wanted to talk to you about your croque monsieur as well because posh cheese on toast, I'm there for. Would you call it the lazy croque monsieur? Because I've taken out no. the bechamel sauce. It's still yeah, really nice. <laughs> it's bougie. It's bougie cheese on toast, Rick. But yeah, the yeah. fact that you've given me permission to call that a meal, I'm I, there for. <laughs> I think yeah, that's the. Uh, sometimes in some of the recipes in the in the book, I was thinking, is this really a recipe? You know. But then I was thinking, well, yeah, it is. You know. Mm. I mean, um, you know, I, I famously, I don't know whether it was this. Um, Delia Smith or somebody, how to boil egg? an egg? You know, you say, well, is there, a, is there any different way of boiling an egg? Well, I think there might be. You know, if you put salt in the water, it tends to firm up the white a bit more. Does it? I didn't know I that. I don't know, actually. I, I put it, I did a piece the other day, boiling an egg. I said, you know, this is boiling an egg for shelling them. But I said it, and it's got, gone out in the next programme. I'm doing a new series at the moment called Rick Stein's Food Stories about travelling around great britain looking for food stories and i'm saying this and i'm thinking i hope this is right 
but I haven't tested it. <laughs> What's been the most um, unlikely story that you've uncovered in your search for these tales across our, sh- our shores? Um, well, there was one that was particularly sort of, I mean, the, the, most of them are, we're, we're, a lot of the time we're sort of highlighting the incredible debt we have in this country to food from other countries. So we've got lots of Indian food, Korean food, you name it, it's in there. A lot of Italian, of course. But there was one, I mean, again, it's like you've got a bit of warp and weft in a, in a series. And there's one um, place in Bristol where we filmed a, in a community centre with this, I'm not sure what nationality it was. Yeah, from the Cap Verde, Verde Islands. But she had three women cooking with her, one who didn't want to be named because they're all ex Slave, I mean, modern slaves, right? And we, we didn't go into any of their backgrounds as to how they, you know, got to this country and what they were expected to do. But each one, one was an Ethiopian and an Egyptian. I can't remember the other one. It'll come to me. They cooked the sort of food from their countries. And it was just, it just if you want sort of testimony to the power of food to do good, the way these women were talking about how grateful they were to this lady from the Cat Verde Islands about bringing them all together and allowing them to cook in this very nice community centre. Um, it was just really moving, you know. And it's sort of, I mean, a lot of the other things, I mean, there's a piece about, you know, roast beef and Yorkshire pudding and, you know, you name it, it's there. But that one really, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't watched the rough cut, but I think it'd be quite, quite powerful. But the story is what has drawn you. It's already made you care about that dish without even tasting it, right? You, yeah, you're yeah. invested in it. Because yeah, there's a romance to that. It's yeah. about good overcoming bad. We, we yeah. just had, um, in recent episode, um, Her Royal Highness Princess Eugenie on the show, who right. has a podcast herself, which deals with trying to abolish uh, and shines a lot on her work to abolish modern day slavery. Um, 50 million people are enslaved across the world right now, more than more people than at any other time in, in living memory. Isn't yeah. that extraordinary, Rick? Yeah, it is, isn't it? I mean, I'm afraid it's just, you know, I suppose we went through a period of thinking life was getting better generally, but it ain't, you know, <laughs> not for a it's lot of carved, people. It's just carved up differently. So, yeah. yeah, for a lot of these people, and a lot of people that are living as modern slaves, are I'm not even aware that they qualify for that status because because of the way that they've been brought into a country or into a situation or they're not paid correctly or you know so on and so forth but the fact that food can bring those people from those communities together and give them a shared moment there's there's power in that isn't there there is there is I, I feel very grateful because food cooking and food has is such a great entry into so much else in life. Of course it is, because we all have to to eat to live, you know. And it's life-giving, right? It's yeah. life-giving, absolutely. With Simple Supples still very much on the tip of our tongue, can I move to our, my third and final question with you? Yes, certainly. I wanted to devise a chef's table. The idea of a chef's table is is incredibly evocative, I think. It's an opportunity for you to sit and watch a master at work yeah. as you gather with your nearest and dearest. So I, I wondered if you had to elect, A, a chef to compile the ultimate 
simple supper, who would it be? But equally, who would populate your chef's table? Dead or alive, uh, chefs, non-chefs, whoever it is, just people that have brought something to your table in life. That's a really hard one, of course, but I'm going to work on it. Now, who would I get to cook? It'd be one of my friends, I think. Um, really? Yeah. I mean, do, do you, I mean, who are you thinking? Like, you know, a scoffee or somebody like that? It's whatever, whenever I put that question to you, it's whoever springs to mind. You know, it's about, it's about simple food with sensational people that have really brought something to your table. They'd be the sort of people that, you know, do understand why good food is good, why simple dishes are what they are, and who just sort of spend their life um, just doing the same thing again. There's another chef friend of mine called Sean Hill, and I asked him not so long ago um, why he's still doing it. He's the same age as me, and he's still actually cooking in the walnut tree in Abergavenny. And he said, do you know what? He said, I get into work in the morning and there, there is a box of perfectly fresh red mullet. And he said, and then I start thinking on what I'm going to do with it for, for the customers, you know, and it's sort of that in endless recurring enthusiasm in some of my friends that I share that I really, I really think is why it's so special being a cook. As to who I cook for, don't know, probably Elizabeth David is, probably of all cookery book writers is probably the one that has inspired me most over my life. Which is, I've, I've, I've read you kind of citing her before. Not many people do. She obviously really resonated with you. Well, yes. I mean, it's just because it's a sort of, there are certain writers, cookery book writers who are also great uh, writers. And, um, mm. And I think it's exactly what you were saying earlier. It's not just so much about the dish, it's what's behind the dish, the sort of what, what you bring to that dish. And mm. hers was the sort of um, joy of arriving in the Mediterranean after the Second World War and, and just seeing how deprived the UK was at that time due to rationing and deprivations of war and, and just finding this sort of unbelievable sort of... Um, sort of texture and colour and flavour and turning it really successfully in, into words, I think. So there'd be her. Um, how many How many is this, this going to be? We could go on forever. Well, you can have a table of six. six. That's normally a chef's table, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, interestingly, one of the other ones I'd be would be uh, Brillat Savarin, the sort of um, 18th century French writer who wrote The Philosophy of Taste. And basically it's about... Um, about the sort of thing that interests me, about what is so special about food, what does it mean, how does it sort of work for people. And, and, he, and he looks at it almost as a sort of scientific process, right? But he, incum he includes, obviously, flavour and, and the, the look of din dinner tables and, and a bit of sex as well, actually, because he's, he's clearly very keen on the ladies, which is not like sort of, it's not like, it's not pornographic in any way, but he brings in the fact that eating and sex are quite sort of similar in some ways, which is nice. But also he says that the best, the, com the best number for a dinner party is eight. He says- quite, And based on what? Just on the, it, too, more is too many and people don't sort of get into, and eight, it, there's enough communication happening to, and, and enough people to make all the ideas and the thoughts memorable. 
So I'd have him, but I don't know whether he'd like the simple modern food. I don't know. I mean, it depends how... In the... That's interesting, isn't it? That um, he drew those parallels all those all those years ago between food and, and sex, because both are life-giving and pleasure-giving and life-sustaining, right? It's sort of interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean... Um... There's a bit, I don't know, I think, I think it's in Simple Suppers or maybe the book before when I was talking to David and one of us is saying, what do you like best, food or sex? And the other, I think it might have been David. He says, oh, food, definitely. No, sex. Now, hang on a minute, food, like this. <laughs> <laughs> I think you had this conversation with Simon Rimmer because he recounted it on this oh, did podcast. He? Did he? Where he said <laughs> there was something about... Um, the comparison with food and sex and it yeah a good meal should make you want to go upstairs and have sex straight away is what he was saying he said that you you told him that yeah that was again David Pritchard but we were sort of having a bit of a whinge about food guides all right you know when they're sort of very critical of what you've done and David just said well just think of it like this Ricky he said you know you could have a, a nice meal and say or you can have a meal and say, now, what was wrong with that? I don't think the wine was the right temperature to blah, 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 right? Or you could say, that was sensational. Let's go upstairs, you know? So that's sort of, uh, it sort of divides the world into those people that take... Sounds like we need David at your table. Yes, definitely. He's got to be there, David Pritchard. Yeah. Um, He's been a bit real guiding hand in your life, actually, hasn't he? Who, who yeah. would you sit next to, David, to get the best out of him? I'd, I'd, I'd set, certainly sit a lady. So I've got to think of a lady now. Because, I mean, in, you know, I, I mean, David was just very charming. He was a bit like Alfred Hitchcock. We often called him Alfred Hitchcock. He was a bit fat. But he had a, a really, really good vocabulary. And he, he was charming in verbally, you know. And... um so I don't know, I'd have just to think, I, I don't know whether Elizabeth David would be the right person next to him, because she, she, was, she was great, but she once said to my first publisher, my first, pub, no, sorry, my first publisher said of Elizabeth, said she could be quite disagreeable at times. She threw a, once she threw a cookery book at me. So I'd have to think of somebody. Because Keith Floyd was a big educator in terms of, giving you permission to be you on screen, right? You, you yeah. famously stood in for him. Yeah. And that led to you having your own extraordinary television career. Had you been covering for anyone else, do you think you would have felt as licensed to be you? I don't know. I mean, the thing, I mean, I think the, the whole sort of like type of cookery program was developed between David Pritchard and, and Keith Floyd. And it's funny because my wife, Sass, has only just started watching old Keith Floyd programs. And she just says how really good he was as a presenter. You know, I mean, I don't know if presenter is the right word. Because he was just so larger than life. You know, I don't know whether somebody is... I mean, I suppose Jeremy Clarkson's the same sort of presenter, you know. But not, but but it, but not as universally loved. I think Floyd was loved. Like, you'd laugh at him. He was always, you know... Even the parody sending him up where he was always half cut, yeah, you know, yeah. cooking something. There was an affection for him that I don't think Jeremy Clarkson garners, certainly from females. That's so interesting because I think Keith was sort of, in a way, uh, it's hard to put, put in words what I'm thinking, really. But I, he wasn't particularly sort of self-aware in a funny sort of way, whereas I think probably Jeremy Clarkson is. And he just, um, he just was, you know... He, 
horrible expression, but he was what he was, you know? And he'd just sort of like get on there and slurp a lot of wine. And, you know, it could be quite sort of like verbal at times, you know, the way he was always like telling the cameraman to move, come and watch me. He was sort of, in a funny sort of way, there was a sort of innocence about him, but maybe it's just where he fitted in the sort of whole sort of development of cookery programs on telly. I, actually, I think um, what who I'd like next to David would be Delia Smith, right? Because, um, I mean, this I, is shaping up to be quite the table, by the way. This is like so? the history of food <laughs> with a knife and fork in its yeah. hand. Well, I mean, because, um, it, it, I mean, I, I know Delia quite well and I'm really fond of her, right? I met her the other night. She was uh, at a party and she just wanted to talk about Norwich Football Club, to be honest. But, I mean, she did such a lot for all of us in the 70s. Uh, but David once did this... Um, sort of skitty program for local um, TV called Cooking It Up. And he had Delia Smith um, as a schoolgirl coming home and burning the cakes, right? And somebody, and he said to, Dave, to one of, I don't know, like a food, somebody like you, Kate, I guess, do you think Delia would like this? And they said, not at all. <laughs> not at <laughs> all. So I'd really like to put them together because I think ultimately they'd have gotten really well. They'd have gotten really That's nice. <laughs> this table is shaping up nicely. I think you've got room for one more. Oh, God. And obviously because you're there. So who, we, who else yeah. is, 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 uh, is going to make that final chair? Well, I suppose um, I, there's this artist friend of mine called David Renfrey who's like, he, he did the, uh, the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition this year. And he's, he's just... Um, He's just, a, I love, he paints, mostly he paints dogs, but much more importantly, he paints women. He loves women, but they're like, he just seems to me in as much as a male, I could ever un truly understand women. But his paintings just show women and all types of women really interestingly. And I mean, the other thing he loves da is dancing. So that he's perfect, like, is painting women when they're dancing and painting their faces. And he's just, it's just, I just love his work because the women are so sort of like passionate but intelligent and thoughtful and going through something always, you know. Um, so probably David Renfrew because he likes, he likes a glass of red wine. And listen, I've just got to add to my dinner party because last time I did one of these, I couldn't bring my wife in, but I definitely bring Sasha oh, yeah. in. Because I mean, I mean, um, I don't think I've ever, until I met Sass, I'd never really enjoyed whatever you call dinner parties these days because in the simple suppers, there's a sort of bit of a joke. I do these essays in the book, which is like a couple of pages about the death of the dinner party. But I end up by saying, it doesn't matter what you call it, we all love getting together. But the person yeah. that's really good at that is, is Sass because she sort of, um, she loves sort of decorating the tables of, of our things but she just loves getting the right people together you know and i just think that's when going back to brillat savran that's the other point he's making big time about about having a dinner party is understanding the connection between each of the people at dinner and that's what she does and then you know a dinner party for her is not, not happened unless everybody gets up and dances afterwards which um, oh, really so she's great like. at casting. She she knows how to cast it and stage it. Yeah, she's a theatre. Yeah. It's really important that I think. 
I sometimes think actually the food is maybe less important. It's got to be good, mm. but it's it's really the sort of mix of people, and it's a bit like a restaurant as well, really. That good restaurants are about the mix of people there as well as the food. Yeah, well, that's that's quite a table. I'm I'm, I'm very envious. Can I can I like can I do the washing up? Yeah. <laughs> You just can. listen in. Yeah. I'd love to hear that conversation. <laughs> well, I'd like um, to ask you too, because you'd fit in very well. So there you oh, go. I'd love it. I'll definitely be dancing by the end of the night. <laughs> Trust me, Rick. Um, I look forward to coming to see you on your travels and your tour next year. You've got tickets. You're, you're, you're touring the UK in March. Is that right? Yes. Yes. I mean, they've just announced the dates. I think we're doing 14, 15 places all over the country well thanks rick honestly it's been a pleasure to finally get some FaceTime with you because i've watched you for years i've cooked you i've eaten your dishes and it's been fantastic to share a conversation with you continued success thank you very much cheers oh what a lovely man so nice to spend time with him. Rick Stein, his new book, Simple Suppers, is out now, wherever you get your books. And tickets are on sale now and available for his show, An Evening with Rick Stein, which tours the UK next year. For more chats with great foodies and fellow chefs, we have episodes in our back catalogue with James Martin, Faye Ripley, Tom Kerridge, Simon Rimmer, Hugh Fernley Whittingshaw, Lisa Faulkner and John Turow, Greg Wallace, and many, many more for you to feast your ears on. In the meantime, I'll be back on Tuesday with more midweek treats from the White Wine Question Time seller. Until then, thanks so much, as always, for your company. White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.